So information goes in, question mark, question mark, question mark, something comes out. So how does how it actually decision-making process works, it has been largely unknown. So with recent developments, we've kind of shifted the paradigm from, okay, let's just get these things to work uh, and behave in a way that they should, to think, okay, great, are they working in the right way? Are they making the right decisions for the right reasons? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be continuing my series on artificial intelligence, the promise and the risk. Today I'm going to be interviewing a professor at the University of Waterloo who is deeply involved in pushing forward the field of artificial intelligence. I'm doing this because I want to get the expert view on what are the challenges and what are the risks. And after this, I'm going to hopefully get more interviews and talk to more people and look online uh, through trusted sources, maybe look at published papers to verify various uh, questions that we might have and to dig a little bit deeper into the field. So right now we're going to continue our exploration. Alexander Wong, professional engineer, is currently the Canada Research Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Medical Imaging, member of the College of the Royal Society of Canada, co-director of the Vision and Image Processing Research Group, and an associate professor in the Department of Systems Design Engineering at the University of Waterloo. He has published over 600 refereed journal and conference papers, as well as patents, with his research focus on artificial intelligence, particularly machine learning, deep learning, and explainable AI. Alexander, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you so much. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and maybe explaining a little bit about your work in artificial intelligence to our listeners. We're, we're very excited to, to have you. More than happy to. Could you share, first of all, just a little bit of your background and how you came to be a, a professor in artificial intelligence with our listeners? Sure. So uh, I had my I got my degrees at the University of Waterloo. Actually, all three of my degrees. And uh, I think this uh, the epiphany came to me uh, actually during a co-op. So as you know, with Waterloo, we have a wonderful co-op. Uh, placement program where you could do internships at different companies. So before that, I had no interest in research whatsoever, let alone artificial intelligence. But uh, it happened where I actually went uh, for a co-op at a industrial research lab and that kind of completely changed my life. I was doing AI before AI was popular and I was completely hooked on it. Uh, ended up with many patents just during that one co-op and then for me it was I just had to learn more about artificial intelligence, <laughs> machine learning, deep learning and that's kind of set my path uh, all the way up to now where I focus on different areas of artificial intelligence that I uh, as in particular consider as operational which is how do we actually take these paradigms and theories and turning them into tangible reality. So you really got in on the ground floor on AI and that's, that's kind of really cool. Could you 
maybe if you don't mind set the time scale for our viewers like our listeners how what is the time scale for ai when did it emerge onto the scene as a, a a thing and when did the big breakthroughs come that allowed you to to do what you've done so uh, the notion of uh, ai has been around for a very long time and as you heard, there's been uh, peaks and uh, valleys where there were a huge amount of interest, but there were certain things from a technological perspective that didn't facilitate for the scale of AI that we have right now. That becomes a real enabling factor. There, were, there just wasn't the wealth of data that we have right now, especially with the rise of the internet, that just didn't exist. And we also didn't have that, the amount of computational power that we had. So the AI at that time was a lot more limited not because the theory was not great, the theory still holds. It's just we have much less data and compute. Then uh, what happened over time was the big change was uh, just uh, maybe less than a decade ago where there was this huge uh, insurgence of not only data, but computational power for enabling a particular concept in AI uh, called deep learning. <laughs> which is the creation of these artificial neural networks get to take information and learn from them to make predictions, to determine things, to uh, make uh, inductions and so on and so forth. And that's where that change came from. And uh, it started with uh, what's usually called the uh, ImageNet. Uh, kind of uh, era where there was this very large data set with millions of different images, and the underlying goal, the challenge, was to determine which of maybe around a thousand different objects an image depicts. And before that, the performance was very subpar, really not good, but with the introduction of um, a new type of convolutional neural network with the epiphany of AlexNet, which leveraged big data and big compute, we saw a very enormous jump in accuracy. And it kept going up to the point where now for that challenge, it, it no longer is being run because we've hit a stage where we're getting greater than human performance for that particular data set. And so that's where things really change. People saw, oh, wow, like AI, especially now coupled with uh, big data and big compute can do things that we didn't imagine it was able to do. And that kind of continued to uh, you know, accelerate the process and interest in AI. So just to take a step back first um, and maybe define our terms for my listeners, because this is a, you know, a very general audience. How do you define artificial intelligence? What, when, you, when you hear someone say artificial intelligence, what do you think of? So usually I think of it from different bubbles. So the AI bubble is the broadest bubble. So it's a very generic term, which kind of, kind of talks about uh, a way of, uh, of a machine replicating some kind of uh, task or ability that a human has. So that's very on the high level. Then usually what we're commonly talking about, which is a much smaller bubble, is a field of machine learning, which is a form of AI where you provide information and data to this algorithm, and the algorithm, which is the machine, learns from the data to do a particular task. And within that, much, that bubble, a much smaller bubble is what we call deep learning which is a type of machine learning algorithm where it uses a artificial neural network to learn this information and to perform tasks. Okay. 
So, I mean, I tried to explain in my introductory podcast uh, a little bit about neural networks to my audience, but maybe we could uh, benefit from an expert's uh, description of what is a neural net and how does it work and how does it learn? Sure. So a neural network or an artificial neural network, we all have neural networks ourselves, but in an artificial neural network, what well, essentially it's a machine learning algorithm that tries to mimic some of the properties or is inspired by the properties of the human brain, where we have synapses and neurons, where neurons are kind of making decisions. Uh, so it gets input uh, signals and it will then fire uh, based on certain conditions. And then we have synapses that then connect to them and they get thicker or thinner as we uh, learn information to re either reinforce or not reinforce a particular idea. So you kind of view uh, artificial neural networks as kind of like a computational version of this where these weights, the synaptic weights, which are the connections, will get stronger or higher value if it's something that's important it might get weaker if it's not as important and so for these artificial neural networks to learn what we do is we take information we pass it through at the different stages of the different layers of a neural network and then we'll see whether or not its output its outcome is the same or similar to what we know as the ground truth it's like when you're teaching a child. So then you say, okay, great. Uh, a picture of a banana went through a neural network. At the end of the day, it thinks it's, it's an apple. But we know it's a banana. So we tell the neural network, nope, that's not quite right. So through this process of back propagation, it then tells it, okay, great. It, you need to kind of tweak your synaptic weights right, the way you learn, so that you make the right decision. So it takes that information, it goes backwards all the way through and updates the different parts of this artificial neural network so that when it makes the decision again, it's closer to the true solution. And through many iterations or many epochs, your, this artificial in, uh, neural network gets better and better at identifying uh, different objects or identifying voice, speech, and so on and so forth by seeing the data again and again. It's like, it's like when you're showing a child cue cards yeah, or flashcards. Yeah. So now I'm very interested in, in this whole topic and how these, these networks learn. And as you say, this neural network is inspired by biology. This is how we think brains work, right? Is the learning process or the teaching process of deep learning analogous to what we think the biological process is? Or is it using some special tweaks. Yeah, so it's, it's more of a, the way it's done right now, it's more of a mathematical construct. So we treat it as kind of like an optimization problem where we're updating things until we get it right. But there's been a lot of uh, investigating research, including uh, one of the first uh, pioneers in the field, Jeff Hinton, where we, they are starting to see this relationship between the way artificial neural networks are being trained right now and how the brain learns. So it's actually a very exciting field right now. And we're still very early to, in finding the relationship between the two. Because I know we're, we're somewhat hampered in that we don't really understand how the brain works that well, I think. Oh, I completely agree. And that's why we make certain approximations or use our ideas of how the brain works. And we try to build uh, these algorithms based on our knowledge. It's often a lot of assumptions are made, but these assumptions uh, work quite well. And as we discover new things about our own brain, we could start incorporating them back into these artificial neural networks. Wow, that's cool. 
this neural network process is, is kind of a black box to us once it gets together. Um, can we even understand AI enough to know what what we're getting into? You have said that one of your um, key uh, attributes is explainable AI. Does this help us to understand what these neural networks are doing? What is that? Oh, most definitely. So before, as you mentioned, there's a black box problem. So information goes in, question mark, question mark, question mark, something comes out. So how does how it actually decision-making process works, it has been largely unknown. So with recent developments, the we've kind of shifted the paradigm from, okay, let's just get these things to work uh, and behave in a way that they should to think, okay, great, now they work are they working in the right way? Are they making the right decisions for the right reasons? So my research, uh, which we've I've also commercialized uh, in the form of like Darwin AI, uh, which is started from uh, University of Waterloo, is you could actually kind of probe and understanding the inner workings of a neural network and then form it together into an explanation that a person can then look at it and kind of understand, oh, this is how my neural network is making the decision. And so we've been doing a lot of work on what we call explainable AI, which is taking the findings or the processes of a neural network and reformulate it into something that we can say, okay, here is the reason. And from doing so, you actually get very interesting insights. Not only do you figure out when it's doing the right thing for the right reason. So, for example, it's identifying that it's a cat because of whiskers, uh, because of ears, and doing it in a quantitative fashion. You also identify situations where it's making the right decision for all of the wrong reasons. Because you're just passing the data. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really know the rules. It's trying to figure out the rules. And sometimes the rules it comes up with does the job well, but doesn't make any sense. And I have lots of examples of those uh, if you're interested. No, I'm very interested. This sounds really cool. <laughs> Tell us. Sure. Okay. So a very good example that we've uh, worked with somebody on was uh, they were very interested in uh, identifying garbage cans. <laughs> Like it's a more of an industrial application. They want to have an AI that can, or a neural network that identify, okay, these are garbage cans, so they could do something with it. So great. So they had a lot of data. They trained a neural network at really, really great performance, right? Then what we did was we audited it using our explainable AI. And what ended up happening was that that had to be thrown out the door. Then the question is, why would you throw something out when your numbers look so great? Well, what we found with the explainable AI was that it was able to identify garbage cans by looking for animal faces. What? <laughs> I know, it, it, for us, it's like, wow, this is weird. So then we looked through the data and it made a lot of sense. If you look at garbage cans or pictures of garbage cans at night, what hangs around garbage cans at night? Raccoons. Raccoons, opossums, rats, cats, and so on and so forth. And so it made this mental association that Every time I see an animal's face, it's a garbage can. Oh so it's, it made that logical link, and which seems to be reasonable if you had no other information. But as a person, you know this is ridiculous. And so these are the kind of things that explainable AI really helps drive out, especially nowadays with a lot of concerns for things like bias, responsible AI, accountable AI, and so on and so forth. So these are the kind of things that we've been working on to help people understand how their neural networks work so they know it's behaving in a proper, responsible way. 
Okay. Okay. So that gets rid of your kind of your weird corner cases that, or some sort of a strange behavior that just isn't going to work in a general situation. Exactly. And we see it even in uh, medical cases where uh, people were building uh, neural networks for identifying diseases from, let's say, chest x-rays, but we found the model was actually learning to read text. They weren't looking at the body. They were actually reading text to identify whether somebody had disease. So these are kind of things where it's trying to bend the rules, but having explainability allows you to figure out that it's bending the rules versus when you deploy it and you just hope for the best. Hmm. Hmm. So, wow, that's, that's really cool. So you probably are working with all the experts in the field and you know what AI is good at. What are the best applications of artificial intelligence for, for humanity, for society? So right now, the uh, best applications are often what you can consider kind of more narrow tasks where the goals are clear, where the impact is great, and where speed is important. So many different ways where it's good for humanity. One is a lot of work that I do is on medical side. So more on medical imaging for uh, supporting diagnosis, prognosis, treatment planning, and so on and so forth. <laughs> that's where AI is really great because uh, it's able to learn from a huge wealth of information. A person can only, let's say, see so many cases. With AI, you collect cases from around the world and teach the AI to do something. <laughs> And then based on that, that AI, based on the knowledge, is able to then provide information to the clinician to support their decisions on what to do. So a very good example uh, that's a little timely right now is our work on the COVID-NET initiative, where we built artificial neural networks for screening, risk stratifying uh, COVID-19. And so with that, we were able to get data from around the world, from many different countries under different scenarios, train neural networks and have it provide suggestions or recommendations or just provide additional insights and information to a clinician to help them make better decisions. And rapid decisions become quite important, especially now with so many cases still ongoing. So that's an example of a uh, great use case. Wow. Okay. It seems like this neural network approach is very good for imaging applications and image analysis applications. Is that basically the, the route where these are the best applications are looking at images and trying to make a decision about what you're looking at? A very good question. So the first uh, real breakthroughs in the area has been on visual perception, which is understanding a visual scene. So you'll see a lot of applications related to uh, you know, image classification, object detection, uh, segmentation, and so on and so forth. But there's actually a huge wealth of other applications where it's actually very appropriate. With one of the more recent breakthroughs around natural language understanding, which is given text, can we get meaning out of it? Is it a positive sentiment uh, based on, let's say, a, a review? It, is this sentence, based on this sentence, what is it trying to tell me? Uh, in a situation that's also useful uh, from a uh, social impact perspective, uh, leveraging it to identifying disinformation or misinformation uh, from text. Like, given this article, is it really telling me a good story or is it making up the facts? Uh, so. 
And there's been a lot of traction in natural language understanding as well. And the other big one that you, you probably also might have seen is leveraging it for speech recognition with the most uh, obvious examples being all the voice assistants out there that now often sit in uh, people's homes. Indeed, yes, yes. The systems that you're working on in medical diagnosis and image analysis, how good are they? Are they better than people? Are they just equivalent to people? Like in these fields, are they super intelligent or are they just, you know, average run of the mill? So, very good question. So, there's a lot of different uh, scientific studies where they were show, able to show, you know, similar kind of uh, performance or better performance uh, compared to, let's say, radiologists and so on and so forth. And that led to a lot of, uh, I guess, weird predictions of uh, doomsday kind of thing for radiologists and doctors. And but I take a very different perspective. There's just certain things that a neural network can, cannot match when it comes to a human clinician. Right. And so what, what I've done when I've designed my AI is less from the artificial intelligence, I'm going to replace something. So automation, but more about augmented intelligence. So that form of AI where we provide additional information that we're able to distill it down in a form that helps a clinician make a better decision. So can we have a AI assisted uh, clinical decision support system for a radiologist who has to go through so many different cases, especially nowadays with the pandemic, can we help them do a better job? Can we help them be more consistent? Uh, can we help them reduce some of the potential uh, errors that could come? Can we give them information in a way that's easier to understand and helps back up their assertions? That's kind of like the mentality that we've taken. So I wouldn't say it's better or worse. We've done it in a way that we've done tests where if we took our AI, and we combine it with a clinician, the performance is higher than either one. Hmm, that's a, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, because the, the human provides kind of the general uh, knowledge to get around weird corner cases that the AI might misinterpret, but it also provides maybe a more uh, standard baseline that it has a breadth of experience on looking at millions of images. Exactly. And that's the advantage of having the broader sense of things versus the narrower sense of things. So that's where human in the loop becomes very important. We've had cases for medical. We had cases for, let's say, manufacturing, where having the person in the loop does there for checks and balances. Uh, we have a lot of other use cases where having the person just makes things much better. And for the person, having the AI makes their life much easier and much uh, more rewarding when doing a task. So that's the, the, the present of AI, what do you foresee in the near future of AI? Um, should we expect these systems to continue to get smarter, to get more general, for example, or are we still going to have very narrow, narrowly focused trained systems in special niches? So very good question. So I think it's going to always be a combination of both, mainly because there are a lot of applications where you don't need a general AI. There's many things that are just repetitive tasks that a person just really just doesn't want to do. Uh, that's where AI can take a greater stance in terms of automation, right? Essentially tedious tasks that nobody really wants to do. That's where AI can really just take over with narrow tasks. Uh, for more complex tasks, at least 
for me personally, I see the uh, improvements in terms of AI being more general, uh, or at least have more information, being able to do more tasks is continued to grow. And that's been shown by literature. But I see the role of AI continue to build up uh, in a human machine collaborative approach which is the involvement of machines will increase greater and greater, but that does not diminish the importance of the individual who is in the loop. Because at the end of the day, it's helping them combine together to do much better and to make sure we do things in a clean and responsible way. Because when automation is left alone without checks and balances, it could often go astray and it's not really its fault. It's a good, a good analogy of this is if you were teaching a child something, right? And you're teaching the child something just wrong because you just didn't know any better. That child will learn from you and think that wrong thing is actually right. Similarly, we have wealth of data and those wealth of data has a lot of human biases and so all sorts of other things. And when fed in the mall and that's all they learn, they'll think, well, this is the right way to go. So that's where the human loop really continues to grow. But I could see AI getting more general, but still assisting a person in doing things better. So you do see a trend towards more general AI. Um, should we expect general super intelligent systems to appear sometime in the future? I, I would expect uh, something closer to uh, AGI, so the artificial general intelligence, closer to the future. But at least in the meantime, a lot of progress needs to be made for us to get to that point. And I don't think we've kind of hit the paradigm shift that enables us to get all the way to AGI yet. Okay. So it's still some major paradigms to be broken to get there. Yes. I'd like to talk a little bit about ethics and artificial intelligence. We've seen um, Stephen Hawking warning that artificial intelligence could be destructive to humanity and Elon Musk putting out his own warnings. There's uncertainty, I guess, in, in the world as to whether or not AI scientists are building super intelligent robots that could pose an existential risk. And you tell me that there's still a paradigm to be broken before we can get there. The general public thinks of 2001 A Space Odyssey or Robocop or Terminator when they think of AI and ethics. You know, armed drones do exist. Face recognition software exists. Are these films potential documentaries? So uh, the, the answer is uh, one of the key things that potentially, but uh, as scientists, we're all aware of it. And we are trying to steer it away from it. So a good example is uh, I'm less worried about, uh, I guess, the sci-fi depiction of AI. That's in the negative. I'm a lot more positive of what AI can do. What's more of a worry right now, and even its current use, is having the right governments, checks and balances, and responsible design in place so that when we're designing these AI, even now that they're done in a responsible, ethical, accountable way. And so, as you mentioned, there's a lot of things that are just not the future, but they're now. So, for example, face recognition software that has gotten a lot of scrutiny. Uh, there's been recent scrutiny on, let's say, uh, language models that are trained on, let's say, biased data. At the end of the day, we're training it based on human biases. And if those get left unchecked, 
then the AI again will think that is the correct way to think. And so that's why nowadays with the scientific community, we've headed in a direction where it's no longer about, okay, before we're panicking because things just didn't work, let's just get things to work. I think we're past that stage. We've shown that not only can it work, but it can actually be deployable in real world situations. We live and leverage AI every day. You could be driving in your car and using Google Maps. That's AI. So that's not the concern. The bigger concern is when it's learning in a biased way and it's doing it without actually being corrected, then it uh, perpetuates certain biases even more than what we do. So a good example is you've probably seen in uh, news and studies where there are facial recognition software that had, let's say, higher tendency to uh, say certain people are more likely to perform criminal activities <laughs> or you have AI where uh, they're screening let's say resumes and it favors certain types of people uh, for, compared to others because we've hired that type of people before and so now there's a lot of companies where they are working with academics such as myself as well as have their own ethics kind of groups where they're then advocated these checks and balances to improve greater transparency. And one of this is, uh, as I explained, explainability. That is one of my lines of work, which helps unveil these insights. So when there are these biases, then it knows to correct for it. The other thing that I've been doing a lot uh, lately has the notion of trust quantification, which is how do we know when and where an AI is making decisions in a trustworthy way. So in a combination, this allows us to improve and mitigate biases and gaps that might occur so we could have AI that we could better trust. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I have seen examples of the bias that, you know, training of these things on biased data can incorporate. I saw recently on Facebook there was an article about an AI that was uh, classifying images of a hand holding a, a radar gun. And if the hand was white, it classified it as an uh, electronic device. And if it was black, it classified it as a gun. Just because that was the training data set that it had. Exactly. And, and that's why explainability becomes very important. A lot of people say, okay, it's so that we understand how it's thinking insights, but it also allows us to screen the data that actually it learns from before it even learns from it. So that we can identify these things ahead of time. We had situations where we identify certain biases well ahead of time in the prototyping stage so that things like this does not go into the wild. Hmm. A thought occurs to me, and I don't, under, I don't know this is the case, but we teach these AIs on a certain set of data and to do a task, and then we... Uh, set them into the wild to do their task. Do systems continue learning once they've been delivered as part of a system? Or is the learning done in the lab beforehand and then a, a, a smart system that learns no further is sent out? How, how does that work? Uh, very good question. It's actually a combination of both, <laughs> with the more common case being a system has been learned based on collected data at a stage, and then it gets deployed, and it no longer uh, experiences additional learning. So what you're referring to before is more the continuous learning. That's more uh, work in progress. There are certain uh, situations where people do that, but it's uh, not as common. Another thing that often people do is they'll have checkpoints, 
So what I mean by is they'll have data at this certain point. We release a model based on this point. As it collects more data, then we'll create, take, okay, we accumulate this new data. Now we are going to update our systems based on this new data. And this has been a ongoing, uh, I guess, uh, area of research for a lot of people, including myself. And one of the things that I focused on has been on, that's one aspect, which is learning as data changes. But the other key thing is identifying when a model is no longer trustworthy because of changes in data dynamics. This is what we usually refer to as model drift. What that means is what I learn from is no longer representative of the data that I see now. With a very easy example being uh, if I train the model on uh, sales data, uh, for recommendations during Halloween, those might not really be the best for Christmas time or Easter. Mm -hmm. Yes, they, they'd, they'd focus on candy sales, wouldn't they? So, yeah, I like this idea of explainable AI. So your system goes in and analyzes a neural network, basically, that has been trained to find out what rules it's using effectively. Yes, that's that's right. So at least, or at least the general thought process, or what 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 it considers as important. So, for example, in the uh, the COVID uh, detection case, it's uh, identifying. Okay, we identified the model is looking at ground glass opacities. It's looking at bilateral abnormalities, or looking for the usual uh, at the usual visual indicators for COVID nineteen. And when we see that it is in fact doing it, then we know that it's making judgments based on right train of thought versus if it was, let's say, looking at text or looking at outside of the body, that kind of thing. Right, looking at the facial expressions on the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my favorite ones was uh, we had an early prototype for one thing that we discarded despite a really high performance where it was, uh, it was based on uh, computer tomography or CAT scans. And uh, it tried to make this, all its decisions, and it did it correctly by looking at the type of patient bed that the patient was lying on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and if we did have explainability, we would have been in a bit of a conundrum because we would not know that it's actually making right decisions for all the wrong reasons. Wow. Yeah, that's good. So <clears throat> one thing coming as a non-expert into this field, I've read um, Asimov's iRobot series in that he posited a list of rules of robotics for artificial intelligences. And these were kind of implemented into all the artificial intelligence systems, uh, you know, so that they would protect humans or not kill people or not destroy civilization. Is that a realistic thing or even feasible with neural networks? Now, that's a very good question. And so there are ways to impart some of this, uh, these type of rules as additional what we call prior information into the system. So that's one way. But the more common practice way, and people are actually, in fact, doing it, but not, to the, uh, not in the exact same way that was uh, mentioned uh, in the books, was that they're adding some additional heuristics or rules when making decisions. So for example, uh, imagine it's a self-driving car, it, you know, you're trying to detect pedestrians so you don't hit them, right? So, well, okay, great. How confident should the system be for you to say that this is a person? Well, that's where we can impose rules where, okay, great. If the model is even 
third, like 40% confident that it's a person, we should hit the brakes. Right? So that's one way to tell, let's say, a neural network that, uh, okay, great. Even though the neural network said that, uh, let's say, there is like probably not a person there, but it's still a certain, you know, I guess, uncertainty that maybe there is, then I could kind of override that decision in determining whether brakes are hit or not. Hmm. I mean, these are very safety critical issues where lives are on the line. What. What level of certainty do you think society needs to be comfortable with these systems? A very good question. It also depends on how critical the uh, a particular task is. So, uh, a good example I always like to use on one end of the spectrum is, uh, you know how uh, there's a lot of AI right now that helps you, let's say, take you know very nice selfies, right? It'll okay. It'll look at the scene and say, okay. Great. I'll adjust these things. And that is what like, we usually consider as a very low mission critical scenario. In which case, it's easy to trust it because when it makes a mistake, it's okay. I'm just going to go take another picture. Like no lives lost, nobody harmed. But in a situation of things like you know uh, autonomous vehicles. Right, making decisions. That's a whole different level. And so, talking to a lot of different regulatory boards and so on and so forth, they're really thinking very closely about it. And for us to really trust it using those lights, uh, we have to come up with uh, guidelines and standards to make sure that they behave in ways that uh, we expect. And so, that level of level of scrutiny or the threshold for trust becomes that much higher. Now you say that you know many researchers are working to towards implementing ethical AI systems and pushing to uh, incorporate the sort of things that you need to to trust these networks. Do you feel there is first of all is there a regulatory uh, regime around this or is it all voluntary at this point? So uh, right now there is no real regulatory compliance that needs to be gone through. I'm saying that in a loose term because most of the regulatory is not uh, to govern the AI. It's just to govern standard behavior, right? So uh, for example, if it's used in, let's say, finance, you still need to make sure that you meet a certain uh, regulatory compliance in the way something behaves, whether it's AI or not. Uh, that said, there's been a lot of uh, interest by a lot of regulatory boards to incorporate AI-specific policies and guidelines. And not only that, as I'm not sure you're familiar, there's a lot of governed bodies that are now trying to uh, introduce new policies to better regulate the types of AIs that are used and what are some of the implications. So one good example is, uh, are you familiar with uh, the GDPR from uh, the European Union? It's like their data, their, it's their data uh, rights and privacy kind of uh, act that they're trying to enable. In Canada, we have, we, we're also uh, looking into a uh, digital charter uh, for privacy and data. So one part of it that people are trying to look into that relates to ethics is algorithmic transparency. So if a decision is made in an algorithmic way, so using, let's say, AI, then for certain things, a person might have the right to know how it made the decision. So for example, if it's a, okay, AI kind of rejected a uh, application. Right, could be immigration, could be something. 
Great. That person has the right to. Okay, why did you reject my application? And the ability to then explain that back—that's where explaining becomes it—becomes very critical. And so there's so as as uh, just to you know keep it short, people are now really looking into introducing ethical policies and standards directly from a government perspective. And there's also uh, groups for example part, uh, that one I'm part of, uh, partnership on AI and so on and so forth, that are trying to outline guidelines to ethical and responsible development and deployment of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that's good to know. I'm I'm very interested in, in that, and obviously the explainability becomes a critical factor. If you if you are if some AI makes a judgment against you and you don't know the basis of that, obviously that's a problem. So I I can see how that would be very important to have that explainability there. And I didn't even realize that this is something that people were working on. So I'm really I'm glad that I I ran into you and found you on the. On the on the web, this is oh, this no, is cool. it's no. This is happy to share because that's one of the common myths that I always like to debunk. <laughs> is that uh, scientists, a lot of people, we're we're not just building it and letting it run amok and hope for the best. We we're actually are thinking about what are the ethical, societal, economical ramifications of having powerful technology like this uh, being deployed in the wild in a way that does affect society. So you've said that AI, to be general, requires uh, a breakthrough, some significant paradigm to be broken to, to get that next step to a general AI that can learn like a human or, or you know, become some sort of a super intelligent being. So when that happens, aren't all bets off? Whoever makes that discovery had better be ethical. Is that the situation we find ourselves in? Well, hopefully, uh, before that actually happens, that we've actually put in things in place to try to guide it so that when it happens, that happens in a ethical, responsible way. Uh, of course, there's no way we could guarantee that given all the different players involved in building AI. And one thing I always like, like to mention is when we're talking about ethics, uh, ethics change depending on who you are and where you are. That's a very important thing. What's considered ethical for one crowd might not be considered ethical for another crowd. And so the hope is that by working as a global community, we're able to kind of come to a consensus in terms of what's considered as acceptable behavior versus not. So the hope is that there's no I guess, rogue player who just creates this AGI, you know, uh, without anyone knowing and have it run amok in a way that uh, checks and balances are not being put in place. Do you feel safe against that rogue player? <laughs> Do you feel like we're doing enough? I, I think the community is trying their best now to do it uh, because... <laughs> Uh, just you just being honest. There's been a lot of incidences, uh, in terms of uh, biases and so on and so forth that has really gotten people to think. Because uh, before these things happened, people really weren't thinking about it as much. Like I said, people were just concerned with getting things to work. 
But when we start seeing little minor things happen, it kind of was a wake-up call for the community to really focus on the ethical ramifications and how we could guide it in an ethical way. So my hope is that that allows us to uh, do much better earlier so that when the time comes uh, that we feel safe, that uh, the unlikely scenario is a rogue uh, AI that will do things in a way that affects society in a very negative way. Okay, very good. So we're getting to the end of our time here. I have one interesting question that I'd like to pose to you. And I know a lot of people are uncertain about this, but do you think that a sufficiently general AI could become self-aware? Uh, that's 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 uh, a very tough question to, to answer, uh, mainly because even the whole notion of consciousness and self-awareness is something that most of us don't really quite understand. And the definition of what is self-awareness or consciousness uh, could change. Uh, so the answer is it could be possible, but right now I don't think we have a good way of judging whether it has even happened at this particular point. What is considered as self-aware? I think that's the key thing. We have very limited tools because it's something you can, is difficult to define. Um, you know, there's the Turing test and that's about it as far as I know. Well, and, and then the question then is, it's a test is only as good as is judge. That's the other thing to think about. So when we're talking about, let's say, a Turing test, does the Turing test really uh, tell you whether something is self-aware? What if you have sufficient data to draw from for you to make logical rules that can fool one or two or three individuals, but not the world? then is that thing considered as self-aware? Because if that's the case, we already have a lot of that in the form of chatbots. And so uh, if, you went, uh, if you use a chatboard, uh, chatbot before, and let's say for service, either a bank or all that, they're, they're extremely realistic to the point where you just, you don't even think about whether or not it's a bot or a person because it's helping you with your needs. And so the degree of what the Turing test allows for also depends on the underlying situation. I know it's not a concrete answer, but for me, there's really no concrete answer to uh, this particular question. So there's no consensus among the experts whether that's even possible? Yes. I mean, there's been lots of theories, but... <laughs> At what point should we start considering the rights of AI systems then? Oh, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't really know, that just to be very honest. A lot of people are starting to think about the philosophical ramifications of it, but at least for, for me, at this particular point, we haven't advanced AI to the point where it is a really uh, troubling issue that we have to solve now. As in people are thinking about it, but the urgency of having a pure definition around this uh, beyond a thought experiment, it, I think we're still far off. Agreed. Yeah. Very good. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and discussing with our listeners all about uh, artificial intelligence. Thank you very much for joining us on The Rational View. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to your viewers. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, 
please consider visiting my Patreon page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.